Heavenly Father, we thank you for that reality. Your name is unshaken. You are the one true living God. As we come together today, we worship you and praise you. We ask for your Holy Spirit to fill us that we might hear your words and understand them and then live them as we turn today and consider Saul who became Paul and how you transformed him. We ask for that same transformation in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Good morning. I am so glad to be here with you today. I'm Pastor Chris for those of you who are new and I haven't been here the last couple weekends because I've been hosting the online services at 8.30 and 10.30, and it's an important thing to do. I get to interact with people online, and I got to pray with some people online, but it's just not the same as being with you. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, We've been going through this series that's called Experiencing God in Such a Time as This for the last seven weeks. And if you haven't been here over the last seven weeks, I'd encourage you to either go to that New Life app or newlifexn.org and catch up on the messages you missed because we've been looking at biblical characters, seven of them so far, who lived in the Old Testament era, which is the time from creation until about 2,000 years ago, or people who lived in the New Testament era, which really covers the time from the birth of Jesus until about 60 years after Jesus rose from the dead and returned to heaven. Anyway, been looking at these characters who lived through difficult, challenging circumstances and saw that they not only survived those circumstances, but they thrived in those circumstances. And today, before we turn to the one I already sort of gave away in my prayer, I want to ask you a question. Do we seek God or does God seek us? Do we seek God or does God seek us? Well, it's a trick question. Because we seek God and God seeks us. In fact, the scripture says, if we seek God with all of our hearts, we will surely find him. But also the scripture teaches us that God is always seeking us first. In fact, probably everybody has heard of Psalm 23. And at the end of Psalm 23, it says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Well, actually, it could be translated, surely goodness and mercy will pursue me all the days of my life. God is pursuing us. And that's where Dante came up with the idea of the hound of heaven. He's after us. And we're going to see that in the life of the Apostle Paul today. So God is always seeking after us. And that's what we're going to look at in the life of this man whose name was Saul. Now, there is another Saul that actually Pastor Mark talked about two weeks ago when he was talking about King David. King David lived a thousand years before Jesus was born. And the first king of Israel was named Saul. That Saul even though David was loyal to him, turned against David and hunted him down. And it it was Saul, that Saul was not, he didn't finish well. He started well, but he didn't finish well. Now we're going to talk about a different Saul. He lived in the time that Jesus had lived, rose from the dead, went back to heaven, and the early church had formed. And this Saul believed that the early church was a cult. He believed that the, the way, which is what the Christians were called before they were called Christians, because Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So they were known as the way because they followed the way of Jesus. Well, Saul thought that this was wrong and that Jesus was a false Messiah. And so uh, he actually was a Pharisee. Now, as soon as I say Pharisee, any of you who know anything about the New Testament know that the Pharisees and Jesus didn't get along very much. Now, they should have. Because the Pharisees and Jesus both believed in angels and demons. 
The Pharisees and Jesus both believed in life after death. The Pharisees and Jesus both believed that the purpose of our lives was to follow faithfully the commands of God. The problem was the Pharisees and Jesus disagreed radically on what it meant to follow the commands of God. And because of that, the Pharisees and Jesus were at such opposition that the Pharisees and other religious leaders eventually arrested Jesus and they convinced the Roman authorities to execute him. So after Jesus rose from the dead, returned to heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit to start the church, an amazing thing happened. The kinds of miracles that Jesus did when he was walking on the earth, healing sick people, casting demons out of people, even healing dead people, those same miracles were happening through the early church, through people in the early church, not just the apostles, but others as well. In fact, listen to this. Stephen was not an apostle. He was a deacon, we might call him. A man full of God's grace and power performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. The church was growing so rapidly during this time. Many biblical scholars believe there might have been 100,000 Christians in Jerusalem just a, a year or two after Jesus had returned to heaven. And so Stephen is teaching, and this group of people, they were former slaves, now they're free, they're Jews, and they start debating with Stephen, but they can't stand up against Stephen because Stephen has the power of the Holy Spirit. So they decide, well, we can't beat him, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to get some false witnesses to come against him and say some things that aren't true, but, but that's the only way we're going to be able to defeat him. In, we're not going to be able to defeat him in debate, so we're going to defeat him that way. So they had these false witnesses came, and they said that Jesus, who Stephen represented, was um, saying that the temple would be destroyed, and also that they were, teach, they, they were teaching against the law of Moses. Now, as the men were speaking, something incredible happened. Here's what happened. It says, at this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. All right, now, I want you to picture something. I'm standing here preaching, and all of a sudden, my face starts glowing like an angel. Would you start to listen a little more carefully? I think you might, right? So, so Stephen hasn't even said anything yet. He hasn't said a word, but what's happening is the people are seeing the, the, these liars telling what Stephen didn't do and didn't say, and Stephen is obviously innocent and God is vindicating him, but the chief priest who's standing there, he turns to Stephen and he says, well, well do you want to defend yourself? And Stephen starts giving this account of the history of Israel. He starts with Abram, you know, who became Abraham and how he was the founder of the Jewish people. And then he talks about how the people went down into Egypt and how Moses rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And then how Joshua led them into the promised land all the way up to King David being the king and saying, King David wanted to build a temple, even though God can't be contained in a house, you know, but it was Solomon who built it. And then he takes this sharp turn and he starts talking about how the ancestors of these religious leaders had persecuted the prophets and even killed them. And then he said, you deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Now, even if you don't know much about the Bible, you can probably guess that when Stephen told these religious leaders that they dis deliberately disobeyed God's law, they were not happy. In fact, in fact, it says they shook their fist at him in rage. So here's what happens next. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, 
gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And when the religious leaders heard this, they grabbed Stephen and they took him out of the city and they started to stone him to death. Now, I share all of that about Stephen to get to this single verse at the end of the chapter. It says this, his accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. This Saul is the Saul we're talking about, the Pharisee, the young man, maybe late teens, early 20s. And, and he's not throwing stones at Stephen, but he's watching everything and he's, he's taking care of the, the coats of those who were stoning Stephen to death. And, and this is what happens next. It says, um, the elders, the leaders executed Stephen as Stephen prayed this, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees and shouted, Lord, don't charge this sin against them. And he died. Now, can you imagine you're Saul and you're standing there watching this and you're hearing that kind of prayer and you're hearing him say, don't charge this sin against him. That's exactly what Jesus had said when they nailed his, you know, his wrists and his feet to the cross. So how did that impact Saul? This is what we read. Saul was one of the witnesses and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Now remember, this series is a series about men and women who lived through difficult times and who God used to either advance the kingdom through the Jews or to advance the, the early church. And it was Saul who actually caused more trouble for the early church than any other human being. In fact, if we read a few more verses, what we find is Saul was going around persecuting Christians everywhere. It was a, he was a one-man wrecking crew. And he was getting Christians arrested and they were being killed. And this is the guy that I'm going to tell you in his lifetime, told more people about Jesus than any person who lived at that time. And yet before he did so, he, he, was, he was a murderer. He was a man who was against the church. So let's see how the transformation came about. Before we do that, we're going to turn to the take-home point. And the take-home point, for those of you who are new, is the one point that we're going to make from Scripture that we call it the take-home point because we want to take it home, we want to reflect on it and live it out. In, in, in the power of the Holy Spirit in the week ahead. So here it is. It isn't enough to be sincere in pursuing God. We must follow the God who pursues us first. So it isn't enough to be sincere in following God. Saul was sincere. And there are billions of people in our world today who are insincere in their belief in some God. But Saul actually thought he believed in the one true God, but he didn't realize that that one true God had a son named Jesus. And that knowledge would change his life forever. And not only his life, but thousands of people in his day, and actually everyone that's in this room today, unless you were born a Jew, because Saul was sent to the Gentiles, which simply means non-Jews, and the message of God through Jesus Christ sent to the Gentiles primarily went through Saul, who became known as Paul. So let's read, starting in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. You can follow along in your Bible, or it'll be up on the screen. And it says this, Meanwhile... Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogue in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Saul was as serious as a heart attack. He was going to end this cult, these these Christians, the way as they called themselves, and he was going to do whatever he had to do to see that happen. 
Now, later on, Luke, who was a physician, became partners with, with Saul, who was by then known as Paul. And actually, Luke eventually wrote the book of Acts. And the Holy Spirit led him to say this about the man who would eventually become a great evangelist and church planter. He said this, that Saul was eager to kill the Lord's followers. How ironic, isn't it? He thought he was doing God's will, and what he was actually doing was destroying the early church. So being sincere sometimes means being sincerely wrong. Being sincere sometimes means being sincerely wrong. And I know it's not popular these days to say that anything is wrong. But, but what, what we find is that there are people in the world today, and they say that it really doesn't matter what you believe you know, about religion, as long as you believe something, and you know all the paths go to the top of the same mountain. But what Saul found out is he thought he was following, and he was following you know, God, but even in his pursuit of God, he was wrong, I mean sincerely wrong, devastatingly wrong, and he was about to find out the truth. So let's continue. It says, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul's life had just changed. In that instant, when he heard the voice, well, first he saw a light from heaven. He was knocked off his horse. And he heard this voice say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul answers. It says this, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Saul didn't know who was speaking, but he asked the right question. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Lord says, I don't know who you are, but you're greater than I am. And he's willing to listen to whoever it is that's speaking to him from heaven. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. What an incredibly specific answer, right? I'm Jesus. The one you're persecuting, he hadn't specifically persecuted Jesus, but he had been persecuting Jesus' body, the church, by causing them to be put in prison and even executed. And he said, I need you to get up because you're going to go to town, to Damascus, and you're not going to do what you thought you were going to do. I'm going to tell you what you must do. At that moment, I think we can maybe relate a little bit because we've been going through a challenging time, a difficult time, and there's a question all of us have been asking during this COVID-19 season, who has the authority to tell us what to do? That's what Saul was starting to figure out here. Is this an authority that I'm going to follow? Turns out it was God, so that's an authority that all of us ought to follow, but the truth of the matter is we all have to answer the same question that Saul had to answer in that moment. Will we submit to appropriate authority in our lives? And the men who were with Saul, Saul wasn't by himself. He was a leader. He had a group of men that were with him. They were going to help him in this mission of arresting the, the, the people of the way, the Christians in Damascus. It says they were, they, the men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. So, those with Saul heard something, but they couldn't tell what was being said. They didn't know who it was. They didn't hear the same thing that Saul heard. And when Saul was able to pick himself up off the ground, he was blind. Now think about that. Saul had been spiritually blind for quite a while. He thought he was following God's will and purpose in his life, but he wasn't. He was actually doing exactly the opposite of what God would want him to do. And so now he could see. 
that he was wrong, that, that Jesus was alive, that Jesus was the Messiah, that the way was correct. But physically, he couldn't see. And, and that's how God gave Paul the ability to start out his new life, right? God started Paul's life of spiritual submission with a physical lesson, the lesson of blindness. Saul was a leader. He never had anybody lead him by the hand anywhere. But now the people had to lead him into town, and he was the one that was being led by the Holy Spirit, actually, even though he might not have said it that way in that moment. But every time at the end of Paul's life, he was known as Paul by the end of his life, every time that he gave a testimony about his life and what God had done in his life, he came back to this moment. In fact, it was a defining moment in his life. And I would say this, the defining moment of every person's life is the moment that we meet Jesus. The defining moment in every person's life is the moment that we meet Jesus. Now, Saul met Jesus in a dramatic way. And we have to admit that. And we might not meet him in such a dramatic way. But if we do, and when we do meet him, we have to do the same thing that Saul had to do. Decide, am I going to follow him? And Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6. If we do not follow him in this life, we're going to meet him face to face after this life ends. And he's going to look at us and he's going to say, depart from me. I I never knew you. So here's the key. How vital it is for us to submit to Jesus while we can do it voluntarily while we're living out this life. So then we're told, a very short sentence, he remained there, that is Saul, remained there in Damascus blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Three days blind without eating or drinking. How long would 72 hours seem if you couldn't tell if it was day or night and if you didn't have your day broken up by breakfast, lunch, and dinner? 72 hours might have seemed like seven days. We don't know. But what was Saul doing during that time? Well, we know one thing because we're going to read what he was doing, but we would guess he was praying. We would guess he was reflecting on his life to that point. He was thinking about all that he had done, and he he was thinking about Jesus is the Messiah, and I've been saying that he's a false Messiah. The church is the true expression of God's will on earth, and I've been trying to destroy it. So there had to be a lot of pain and anguish going on inside of Saul. And while that was going on, something else was happening, and this is what we read. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to believers in Jerusalem, and he is authorized by the leading priests to arrest anyone or everyone who calls upon your name. Could you imagine being Ananias? I mean, Ananias, first of all, it's the best day of his life because God speaks to him audibly. Ananias! And he's like, here I am, Lord. And then, then God says, hey, Ananias, I have a job for you. I just want you to go over to Straight Street, go to the house of Judas. There's a guy there named Saul. I want you to lay hands on him and so he can see. And Ananias is like, uh, uh, excuse me? You said Saul, right? You mean the guy that was in, in Jerusalem arresting all the, the believers and now he's coming here to arrest all of us and you want me to lay my hands on him and, and heal him? I think that's a bad idea, God. Now, obviously, God knew what Saul had been doing. 
But I have to admit, if I'm Ananias, I'm probably thinking this is a really, really bad idea. It says, but the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, we might glide right past that statement that I'm going to send Saul to be my witness to the Gentiles. But that would have been another hard stop for Ananias. You see, Ananias was a Jew who became a believer in Jesus. And all the believers in Jesus were Jews. In fact, all the believers in Jesus who were Jews didn't even think Gentiles were worth the time of day. And Saul, as, an, as a Pharisee, he would never, never even thought to speak to a Gentile, let alone tell him about Jesus. But that's what Saul is going to be charged to do, is to go and be a witness to the Gentiles. And notice it says, also, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for me. Now, our God is not sadistic. Saul had caused a lot of suffering, and so God isn't getting back at him. But because Saul decided, committed to doing what God said to do, as we'll see here in a moment, the rest of his life, he would suffer physically and in many other ways because he had simply said yes to doing God's will. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogues saying, Jesus is indeed the Son of God. So Ananias submitted to God's will. He went and laid his hands on Saul. Saul is able to see. He gets filled with the Holy Spirit. He goes and gets baptized. First act of obedience out of Saul is he gets baptized. He comes back, eats a little food, and then he goes to the synagogue and starts preaching about Jesus. Not what he came to do. He came to arrest all the believers in Jesus at the synagogue, but now he's preaching Jesus. I love Saul. I mean, I love him. Paul, Saul, whatever you want to call him. Because he was all in. It didn't matter. I mean, he was all in when he was wrong, right? Now he's all in when he's following the one true God through his son Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now in Damascus, here's how people in the synagogues responded to Saul's new message. It says, all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked. And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. So Saul's preaching that Jesus is the Messiah is so powerful, nobody can refute it. Do you remember what happened when Stephen's preaching was like that? They killed him. And it's the same plan. I mean, if you can't beat them, Kill them. That's what the message really was for any believer in Jesus Christ. And so it says this, After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill Saul. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him. But Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. So Saul's life is spared, and he travels back to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, he, does, he goes to meet the religious leaders, but not the Jewish religious leaders. He wants to meet the, the leaders of the way. He wants to go find the apostles. He, wanted, he wants to meet them face to face. But it says this, when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, the apostles, but they were all afraid of him. They did not believe he had truly become a believer. Can you blame them? 
I mean, this guy was the worst news ever. And now he's saying, I'm a believer. Couldn't it just be a trap? That's what they're thinking. But here's what happens next. It says, then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. That would be the way it was for, for Saul wherever he went. Everywhere he went, he would teach about Jesus. He would teach from the Scripture if he was teaching the Jews. He would just teach from everyday life if he were teaching Gentiles. And eventually, people tried to kill him and he would have to go somewhere else. But it says, when the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. The name Barnabas means son of encouragement. It literally means son of encouragement. And that's what Barnabas was to Saul. And if, if we read the rest of, of the book of Acts, at least from chapter 9 through to chapter 15, what we find is it always says Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul. Then it says Saul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas. Then it says Paul and Barnabas. But Barnabas is always there. He's always there to encourage Saul. He's always there to get Saul to be accepted by the believers. And here's something I want all of us to remember. We all need a Barnabas to speak up for us when we first believe. Now, some of us grew up in the church, so when we became believers, it wasn't a big deal, and everybody sort of said, oh, I, I figured that would happen. But some of us were far from God. Maybe some of us are far from God right now. And when we change, people might not believe it right away. I once met a guy in Kentucky on a mission trip, and he told me he had been an alcoholic for most of his adult life. And he finally, he accepted Jesus at a, a revival. And he said, six months later, my friends believed it. And two years later, my wife believed it. You see, it doesn't always happen that we believe right away that somebody's life has been transformed by the blood of Jesus. We all need a Barnabas. And as we get mature in our faith, we need to become Barnabases for others. So the last words of Acts 9 are these. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. Now, if you know anything about Israel, that's all of Israel in those days. Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. It became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it also grew in numbers. When Saul had started his rampage against the Christians, the believers, the way, they had been dispersed from Jerusalem all over the place. They were, they were scattered all over Israel. And they were in fear of this one man, Saul. Now Saul had been converted. He had been changed from the inside out. And what happened now is that same nation, which had been in such disarray for believers, is now a nation at peace. The transformation of one person did that. Now it says that, that the believers were in the fear of the Lord because they didn't have to fear Saul anymore. And then it said something very, very important. It says that with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, the church grew in numbers. The numerical growth of the church is always the work of the Holy Spirit, but he uses us when we are willing to submit to his authority in our lives. You see, the Apostle Paul changed the world, changed the world in his day because his life was changed from being against God and God's purpose, although he thought he was following God, to following Jesus. And he told people everywhere, if you read the book of Acts, it says it came to the point that everyone in Asia had heard about Jesus through the ministry of Saul and those that Saul equipped. So that's incredibly 
important for us because here's our next step today. I will follow Jesus as he pursues me this week. Saul didn't really start following Jesus until Jesus pursued him, appeared to him in a vision. And maybe we never get to have a vision like that from God. But Jesus told the apostle Thomas, who said he would never believe until he saw Jesus and put his hands in his nail prints in his hands and the, the side where it had been speared. But the moment he saw the resurrected Jesus, Thomas said, my Lord and my God, and he bowed down in front of him. And what Jesus said was, do you believe because you've seen? Blessed are those who have never seen and yet believe. That's all of us. And my question this morning for each of us is simply this. Have we listened to the voice of the one who's been calling out to us? Have we been willing to recognize that God is pursuing you personally? Have you cried out, who are you, Lord? Or maybe you know it's Jesus and you're sort of resisting. Are you ready to say, Jesus is Lord in my life? Because I want you to know it's very simple to do that. It's as simple as ABC. It's as simple as admit that you're a sinner. Now, if, if you ever read the New Testament, what you probably know about the Apostle Paul is he admitted he was a sinner. I mean, he wrote these letters and he said, I was the chief of sinners. He admitted that his life wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Then believe in Jesus. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's the God of miracles. Believe that he's the same God that appeared to Saul so long ago. And then confess in a different way, not just admit that we're sinners, but confess that we have sinned to God and, and repent of those sins and then confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. It's that simple. If you've never done that, I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. I'm not going to ask you to do it for three days like Saul, just for about three minutes. I'm going to ask you to think about it, pray about it as we sing together. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about trusting Jesus as Savior and Lord. So would you stand and sing with me?